we're going to be looking at various uh, different questions uh, throughout tonight. We're going to start uh, with a very basic question, and that is, well, what uh, does gender dysphoria uh, feel like? Uh, we're living through a time of really heated uh, discussion about gender identity. And over the last 10 years, we've seen a significant challenge to what is, was, is called a binary view of gender. That is, that someone is either male or they are female. And that view is being challenged. And this has caused spin-off debates about all kinds of things, about uh, the pronouns that we use, about the toilets that we use, about the capacity of teenagers to make decisions about hormonal or surgical interventions. It's raised questions about elite sports and who can compete in which category. It's even challenged the very words that we use to describe ourselves and to describe our relationships. So words like man and woman that used to feel very neutral now have a, a lot of weight to them. And this debate rages on parts of social media uh, and it arouses very strong emotions. But it's also being conducted soberly and with compassion by people who really want the greater good. And that's the way we're trying to do it here at Christchurch. The single most telling example of this brave new world in which we live is the bewildering array of ways for us to describe our gender uh, that are now offered by Facebook or Tumblr or other social media. Uh, there is simply an ever-growing number of ways for us to describe our own sense of our gender identity, and yet on other forms that we fill in, uh, Naomi and I had to fill in a form this morning, uh, we had the choice of only two. We could indicate that we were either male or female. In the 1990s, uh, psychiatrists and health professionals would describe someone who felt uncomfortable in their own birth gender as suffering from what they then called gender identity disorder. And they classed it as very similar to other disorders, especially eating disorders like anorexia nervosa. But from 2013, some health professionals changed that and started to talk about gender dysphoria, making it less a disorder or something that had gone wrong and more a description of discomfort, uh, somebody feeling uncomfortable uh, with their sense of gender identity. Now, of course, we're actually talking about real people, and that's what we want to focus on tonight. We're talking about our friends and members of our family and members of this congregation and of this community. And what stands out, as soon as you start to ask the question uh, about gender identity, is how painful gender dysphoria is and how isolating it is. People describe a deep dis-ease because uh, there is a mismatch between their biological sex uh, as compared to their own sense of gender identity. I'm a boy living in a girl's body, or I'm a woman living in a man's body. And the experience is intense and debilitating. People do not choose to feel this way. Uh, some people talk about looking in a mirror 
and feeling like the person looking back is not really them at all. Uh, some people can't even bear to look in the mirror because of their hatred of what they see. And for some, the feelings of discomfort are so acute that they contemplate uh, cutting off uh, parts of their body or mutilating uh, their own bodies. And we're going to dive into the question of identity a little bit more later. But for now, uh, we're calling this ne next bit, can we have some facts, please? Because this is all so new, there is really very little disagreement about what is actually going on. There are hardly any long-term studies uh, of gender identity issues. Almost everything is contested and is kidnapped by opposing sides of the debate. But are there any facts that we can be sure of? Well, let's start with the least controversial. It's widely accepted that we have seen a meteoric rise in the number of cases referred to the Gender Identity Development Service over the last 10 years. And it's that, the GIDS, the Gender Identity Development Service, that deals with people who are experiencing these issues. And that meteoric rise may be as much as 3,500% over the last 10 years. So something has happened in the last 10 years. The majority of those referred to the development service uh, most recently are girls. So 15, 20 years ago, it was mostly boys who were presenting uh, at age maybe 12 or 13, but for a long time had felt somehow uncomfortable or ill at ease. Uh, now uh, we're seeing that overtaken uh, by girls, mostly sort of young adolescent girls, who uh, quite suddenly, uh, in a sense, feel extremely uncomfortable. Uh, there is a trend also seeing clustering of cases uh, of girls in individual uh, year groups. So in one English school, uh, there have recently been 16 girls in one year group uh, saying that they have gender dysphoria. So we're on safe ground in saying that we've seen a massive rise. We're also on safe ground in saying that we are seeing a much higher use of drugs called puberty blockers for adolescent children. And there's been a flurry of legal challenges uh, against this. And these puberty blockers essentially postpone puberty until that individual reaches the age of, say, 18 to 20. And these uh, drugs are being given in certain cases to children as young as 11. And the focus of the debate around them is whether this is a really good thing because it buys some extra breathing space for that child and their family to think, or whether it hurts vulnerable young people too quickly into more extensive treatments uh, with not enough known about the effects of these puberty-blocking drugs on young bodies. Uh, the puberty-blocking drugs are also being sourced online by young people and by parents who essentially bypass uh, the doctors and get the drugs for themselves. There's a very small percentage of babies born each year who are uh, called intersex. That is, they are born either with uh, ambiguous external genitalia or with hormonal abnormalities. 
Now, there's no agreement as to how many intersex babies are born globally. Estimates vary from uh, less than one in 10,000 births, or even less than that, uh, through to one in 1,000. This is obviously deeply worrying uh, to the families concerned, both immediately when the child is born, what action, if any, should be taken, and then as the child grows. Should we bring this child that we love up? Should we bring this child up as a boy or as a girl? There's some evidence that being born intersex is more likely in the developing world, and that there's an association with deprivation and with poverty. But those who are born intersex need to be treated with great dignity. And also, they need to be able to speak for themselves their overwhelming desire, as far as I understand it, is not to change their gender identity, but to clarify it for themselves. There's a considerable range of opinion over the number of people who experience gender dysphoria. Uh, depending on what you read, some people would say less than 0.1%. Others would put the figure at 1% or even higher. There's no agreement. There's also no agreement in terms of what causes gender dysphoria. There have been some studies that seek to establish a difference in brain shape or brain chemistry, but they're simply not conclusive, and nobody really knows. It's very hard to find any agreed evidence about the success or the failure of particular treatments for gender dysphoria. You can find plenty of young women uh, on YouTube who are tracking their journey to a deeper voice and to a fledgling beard or young men who are buying their first bra. They seem very happy. They seem to feel that they are becoming the real me. But there's very little independent empirical evidence. Equally, there are studies charting a significant increase in the attempted and completed suicides of those who have transitioned to a different gender. Uh, also, there is uh, evidence of an increasing number of people who detransition back to their biological sex. And lastly, outcomes for adolescents who don't take puberty blockers or hormone treatments, but instead op opt for talking therapies and support from families and health professionals, those uh, are contested as well. The most reliable studies suggest that between 60 and 80% of adolescents who experience gender dysphoria will readjust to being comfortable with their biological sex if they are patiently supported uh, by therapeutic uh, support. But what this very short summary proves is that there is a wide range of claim and counterclaim. And this all makes good conversation even harder, but we are doing our best here in starting this conversation tonight. The medics and other professionals agree that every single person experiencing gender dysphoria deserves respect and deserves compassion. But they don't agree on the causes, and they don't agree on the most appropriate treatment. Many urge young people in particular to wait and to listen, and to talk. And they express, and medics that is, express a deep concern about a headlong rush to chemical or surgical interventions. But they are sometimes afraid of expressing that view publicly.
going to come back uh, a little later on uh, to, uh, in a sense, the core question of tonight, which is about how we form our identity. Uh, but we are so, so mindful tonight of the fact that in Glasgow, there are incredible conversations going on that are going to affect uh, the future of our planet and the future of all of our lives. And so we're going to, in a sense, park gender for just a little bit and in our hearts and in our minds uh, go to Glasgow and uh, our prayers uh, tonight are going to be led uh, by a group of Tear Fund uh, supporters from across the world. Uh, so do watch, but do keep your heart open as you engage with God in asking for his blessing on these conversations. So can we run the Tear Fund prayers, please? One important thing we all share is that, of course, we are all asking the question, uh, who am I? I'd just like you to reflect for a moment how you decided about who you are, the kind of person that you want to be. One of the most popular ways is to look inside and to say, I discover who I am by examining my own feelings and my own desires and my own attractions. That's the way to reveal the real me. And, and we would say, well, it's dangerous to ignore our own inner thoughts and feelings. And so, if I feel like I'm a woman, but I have a man's body, then I have a big and helpful clue to who I am. I am a woman, but I'm just trapped in the wrong body. Now, the big and obvious problem with that approach is, of course, that our feelings are so unreliable. They change constantly, especially during our adolescent years. We really, really want what our friends want. We fall passionately in and out of love. We pick up and then we drop passions and causes. Our feelings feel trustworthy and accurate but in reality they mislead us. And of all the feelings to base our identity on, hatred is the most dangerous, especially hatred of our own bodies. It's hard to see anything beautiful or lasting or peace-filled that is built on hatred of my own body. The second place we could look for an answer to the question, who am I, is outside of us. And there are plenty of things that we could use to form our identity or to choose our identity. How you look, for instance, which is, of course, a terrifying nightmare to most of you who are millennials or younger, because you've grown up projecting a digital image of yourself online, being instantly liked or ignored, when you put out images of yourself. And you are reminded uh, 30 times a day that there are people in this world who are more beautiful or funnier than you are. Or you can decide uh, to uh, build your identity on your family, your tribe, your people, where you come from. Or you can choose your successes or the high points of your achievements. But all of those things, all of these external things that we look to on the outside are just as unreliable. None of us enjoys playing a part, pretending to be something that we're not. 
And life tends to go wrong and change our circumstances. We muck up an important relationship or a position of responsibility. We grow old. Our briefly beautiful body sags or it gets injured or we lose our spot at the top of the class or our tribe or our family let us down. Then what do we do? External things, things on our outside, turn out to be no better than feelings as a solid foundation for identity. But of course, each of us has an identity. We want to be known as a someone, as a someone different to other people. And a deeply Christian insight is that the clues to our identity are found in the things that we most value that we in Christian language worship. David Foster Wallace, in a remarkable graduation address at Kenyon College in 2005, told the students this. He said, everybody worships. Everybody. The only choice we get is what we worship. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being, being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Christians, in theory, believe something very different, that we base our identity not on what we see inside primarily, not on things that are outside, but something very different. But of course... As you know, many Christians, many of us still pay way too much attention to our own insecurities or how we measure up to other people. And in a few moments, I'm going to ask Jenny to come and read. Jenny's going to come and read what I believe is probably the key biblical text for understanding our identity, particularly with regard to our biological sex. And that is found in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It's a really important couple of verses, both because of where it comes in the Old Testament, right at the beginning of Genesis, but also because it's repeated very positively by Jesus in a conversation that he has about intersex and voluntary celibacy and marriage. So Jenny's going to read from Genesis 1 for us. So reading for Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, 
Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Let me try and point out the things that are underlined in this important passage in the Bible. But first to observe, we are all choosing and molding our identities. And we use many tools and categories to help us do so. Coming face to face with God challenges every single one of us. It doesn't just challenge people who are experiencing confusion about their gender or about any other issue. It challenges all of us. It challenges the temptation to build our identity on any one particular stereotype including the stereotypes that our culture has adopted of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Coming face to face with God challenges the temptation to build our identity on our family, on on our success at work, on the role that we have in life, in the way that we look. And so Christian, middle-aged, heterosexual men like me are every bit as likely to build our identity on idols and distortions and lies. So this challenges every single one of us. And here's what stands out for me in those passages, the passage that Jenny read for us. First, and most importantly, and it was so great that it was picked up in some of the songs we were singing earlier, each one of us is made in the image of God. And that gives each one of us an inherent dignity. Because we have this sign of God's tender love over us and the responsibility we share to care for his creation. And for me, when it comes to identity, this is the one and only solid place to stand. The question is, what does God think about me? He gives me life. He wants me to know his love. He's given me purpose in the world. And if I had any doubts whatsoever, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to seal and to demonstrate his love for me. So for me, that is the primary thing when it comes to my understanding of who I am. I won't always feel that. I can't judge that from looking at my externals. I can only know it as I respond to the love of God. The second thing we hear in Genesis and repeated by Jesus is that God did create us male and female. Our creation is either men or women, both alike in dignity and worth and the right to life, is parallel to our being made in God's image. Neither male nor female is better We are complementary to each other. That is, we complete one another. Only male and female together reflect the true complexity and beauty of God. So I believe that our being female or male is a solid, unchanged thing that we receive and that we go on to color in for ourselves. I get to express my own unique version of being a man 
with all of my faults and wounds and insecurities and all of my strengths and passions. But in doing so, I ignore all stereotypes of manliness, wanting instead to grow in the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he gives me. The third thing we see is that we are told to be fruitful and to increase in number. Each of us has a body that is oriented towards the possibility of bringing new life on earth. Within the scope of our fallen world, our body anchors the vast majority of us in one half of this reproductive equation. I have the privilege of being a father, but I could never be a mother. Lastly, we have a vital and God-given responsibility as stewards of our world to care for creation, to work for its diversity. That's why it was so good to have those prayers just now from Tearfond because they, they tie in so completely to what we're talking about tonight, that an absolutely vital part of our identity as people, our God-given responsibility to care for our creation. Now, if you were here with us two weeks ago, we had a reading from 1 Corinthians 15. And at the time, one verse really stood out to me. Let me end with this. Paul, writing sometime after becoming a Christian, says this. He says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I'd like to end by sharing a few thoughts about this simple verse. It's a really beautiful place for every single person to get to. However young or old we are, however long we've been a Christian, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now for me, today, this means first and foremost, accepting who I am in God's eyes, that I am loved and that I am rescued, that I was fought for by Jesus. And I can say this as I look back to Jesus' cross and resurrection. It's only by his grace, his gift of love, that I am what I am. And so my friendship with God is something that I receive. It's not something that I achieve. God doesn't wait for any goodness or success or merit on my part. He wants to give me grace. He doesn't want to give me a hard time. For me, it also means accepting some of the things that I've received Sometimes we use the image of cards that have been dealt to me. For me, that would include my family, my color, my body shape, uh, particularly the size of this Cansdale nose. Let me give you a profile here uh, that I know from photos goes back five generations and has unfortunately landed on one of our children. So there are some things that I've received. There have been moments when I would have wanted to have changed some of them. But there are things that I receive, and I believe that one of those things that I receive is my gender, my being born a man. Saying, but the, saying by the grace of God I am what I am also means facing my mistakes and my insecurities and my wounds and my selfishness. And I say that because I know that I'm so far from being perfect. 
And like you, there are times every day when I just ache to be more like Jesus. And I long not to be consumed by worry and anxiety. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I can now see all those things in the light of God's love for me, knowing that God sees those things in me more clearly than even I see them. But he's never stopped loving me, never thought any differently about me. And last of all, believing that by the grace of God, I am what I am, means accepting that I am a work in progress that I need the hourly and daily grace of God in my life. And so I never want to be independent of God's help. I never want to be so grown up that I can get by at last on my own. And I've come to realize that I don't mind if this makes me seem weak. I don't mind that it, it, it might seem as though I need the crutch of God's help to lead a deeply fulfilling life. The truth is, I do need that help. And I do need that grace. And I do need that solid ground of love. I need to stand there. Otherwise, I feel I'm in sinking sand. I'd like to ask the musicians to come back, please. And we're going to sing a couple of songs that in particular just help us, each one of us, to anchor our identity, who we are. Not on how we feel today at this moment, not on things that we might want to measure, but simply because of who we are in the eyes of God. So if you're able, do please stand as we continue.